remember I saying the other night that um, I think it was uh, almost the closing words I left you on the idea that shunyata without compassion and the understanding of shunyata and the awareness of wisdom as it's often translated that can arise through the understanding of shunyata can be on its own quite hard quite brutal in fact um, to put none too fine a point on it and what was needed was compassion as well to balance it and I think the phrase I gave you from the Tibetan that's loosely translated I must admit from the Tibetan is that wisdom without compassion is cold and compassion without wisdom is just sloppy and that you needed the both to really develop properly in a balanced way I've seen this many, many times when people have been criticised at the monastery, for example, I've lived in, as being either, for example, too down the wisdom channel, um, over going through the intellectual stuff and being engaged in analysis and debate and all sorts of things that I was involved in when I lived in the monastery. And the others who just went away and kind of meditated on compassion. And um, often you saw, you know, there were criticisms from both sides. Oh, you're a bit too intellectual. Oh, you're a bit too sloth. Soft and floppy. <laughs> you know, there's kind of accusations flying backwards and forwards. But the message that was coming across quite loud and clear to me was the idea that you have to have the balance between the two. And in Tibetan Buddhism, um, those of you familiar with it, I don't know if you've seen two symbols of Tibetan Buddhism, which is usually the bell and something known as the Vajra or the Dorje in Tibetan. And now, literally, uh, these are two ritual objects they are used in all tantric ritual, for example, in, in the Vajrayana portion of Tibetan Buddhism. And these two objects, the bell, which symbolizes compassion, and the Dorje, which symbolizes wisdom, should never be separated. They should never be parted. In fact, when you're supposed to have them on, as Tibetans often do, on their shrine, that they have to be touching. They actually have to be touching. You can never have them apart. And it's almost considered a criminal act if you, you know, take one off without the other and use one without the other. Essential to the development of compassion is the arrival, and this is the point I want to come to tonight and the thing I want to talk about, is the arrival of bodhicitta. Often translated as mind oriented towards awakening. The mind set on enlightenment. Now, just a, again, a little word really here. I much prefer the word awakening to enlightenment. Because literally, the word bodhi, which is in bodhicitta, is that which is related to the word Buddha. And what the Buddha had was not enlightenment, he had awakening. He woke up. Literally, Buddha means the one who woke up. Nothing else. So actually, this leaves you and I as all sleepwalkers. Um, because that's what we do. We sleepwalk through life. Where the only one who is actually woken up, or the only person who is actually woken up, is somebody like a Buddha. When we look around in terms of our practice, in terms of our way we live our lives, then we're not solely alone, are we, in the world? And this is one of the things that really does impinge upon you 
if you develop the kind of sensitivity that you know, I thought a little bit about and what I think is aimed at in the practice of Buddhism, be it whatever form there is, that we suddenly become aware that you know, if we're not just simply egotistical, we're not simply just self-centered, that we're actually in a world with others. It's an unavoidable fact, it's an inescapable fact. Quite a lot of us might live within cities, um, and definitely there's a lot of people around, there's a lot of beings around, but there's also a lot of other beings, which are non-human beings, which are also around, which we share the world with, with the emphasis on sharing rather than dominating. Now, that's one recognition, that we simply are in the world with others. What the path of Bodhicitta, in fact the path of the Bodhisattva, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, what the path of the Bodhisattva and the arrival of the Bodhicitta give rise to, is not just, oh here I am, in a world with others, oh what a drag, <laughs> um, it stops me from being totally selfish, <laughs> but actually the path of the Bodhisattva is geared towards not just being with others, but being for others. In other words, to be for service of others. And just as I sat upstairs, I quickly translated the final, one of the final verses out of the path of the Bodhisattva, which is known as the Bodhicharabhatara by Shantideva, um, an 8th century Indian. It's the classic manual for training the Bodhisattva. Um, and it's probably one of the most classic texts in the Mahayana. And right at the end, in a whole dedicatory verse, and this is at the beginning of it, there's only one stanza out of about 15 stanzas that, stand, that actually the, form the part, the, the body of this dedication. He says, May I become a protector for those unprotected, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a bridge, a causeway, for those wishing to gain the other shore. And he goes on, may I be food and drink, may I be food and you know, may I be food and water, may I be a nurse, may I be a doctor, may I in other words, be for others. Totally. So the path of the Bodhisattva is this opening out. The opening out of ourselves onto a world full of others who need help. Now remember I was saying the other night, the Bodhisattva's path is a long path. It has scriptural authority, in many ways, and there's a whole section of literature within the Pali Canon and within, well even within the Mahayana literature as well, which are known as Jataka tales, which some of you might have come across. Jataka tales purport to tell stories, some of them are extremely repetitive by the way, um, that purport to tell the story of the Buddha's path, or the would-be Buddha's path, eventually becoming the Buddha. So they detail out stories of self-sacrifice a lot of the time. You know, how the Buddha, for example, or the, the would-be Buddha, gives up his body to feed a starving tigress so that she may feed her cub. Um, and there's lots of kind of stories like this. Now, you know, how one takes them is up to you, you know, whether one takes them literally or as metaphorical. But the whole point about it is the idea of self-sacrifice of giving up for others, opening towards the other as being you know, more important in some senses than oneself. 
the classic distinction that's supposed to mark those, certainly those who traditionally practice the path of Mahamudra and the path of the Mahayana, the great vehicle, as it's called, from those who are practicing the non-Mahayana path, I distinctly do not use the word Hinayana, which some of you might have come across, um, which indicates the little vehicle. Um, and it's a rather pejorative thing because Mahayana looked around and they said, ooh, all those other people practicing little vehicle material. Uh, so one's the Rolls Royce and one's the Mini <laughs> of the, the system. Um, but really, one should really speak of them as non-Mahayana paths, of which, of course, the only really existent non-Mahayana paths these days is the Theravada, the path of the Theravada. The thing is supposed to distinguish the Mahayana from the non-Mahayana is the arrival of Bodhicitta. Is the arrival and the setting one's sight on awakening, not just for oneself, but for the sake of all beings. And so the path is not within this tradition the path of the Arhat which is the traditional path which is laid down in the non-Mahayana text. The person who wishes to attain Nibbana or Nirvana from the, for themselves. In other words, they want to opt out. They want to opt out of Sangsara as quickly as possible and they want to do it for themselves. The Mahayana with Bodhicitta is said to have dedicated themselves to the long, extremely arduous path of attaining awakening or full and complete Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. Anything that has a mind being all sentient beings, not just human beings, but anything from the ant to the elephant to the human being that possesses that mind. And to help them on their way, as Shantideva says in that piece that I read here, to the further shore, to the other side. To the other side here is always nirvana, not sangsara. So it's out of sangsara into nirvana. Now, there are two types of bodhicitta. There's what's known as making the resolve for awakening and actually being on the path to awakening. An odd little distinction, isn't it? But I think I can probably make it clearer. One is deciding where you want to go for a holiday, and one is actually taking the holiday. <laughs> That's the distinction. So in other words, you, you know, making the resolve towards awakening is not necessarily being on the path to it. Not actually practicing the requirements that are needed to be actually fully on the path. This is reading your book, studying the roadmap, looking at everything, but not actually treading it as yet. You're still plotting the route, and you haven't actually set out on the journey. Whereas the second um, in this distinction, the second part of the distinction, is actually saying those who are on the journey, actually journeying towards, now, part and parcel, and this is really what I want to talk about, the bulk of what I want to talk about, is actually being on that journey 
means practicing something which is known in the Mahayana path as the six paramatas, the six perfections. There are also other distinctions which are made, like the ten bhumis, or the two ten levels, too. But the six perfections are the classic underpinnings for the path of the Bodhisattva. So, for example, Shantideva's text is divided into exactly that. It's actually divided into eight chapters, nine chapters, of which the bulk of it, the main part of it, talks about the six perfections. Now, the first of the perfections which is involved in the arisal of Bodhicitta is the perfection of giving. That's the foundation. The perfection of generosity. Now, I don't know if you realise it, but the practice of generosity, of course, is the absolute opposite of our normal way of being in the world, which is motivated by something you might have heard of called greed. In other words, generosity is generosity towards the other. Giving help where help can be afforded. Now, in traditional Buddhist cultures, this is always taking form, obviously, of supporting the monastics within those societies. Varied from culture to culture within the Theravada countries, or most of them, either it's practiced on the arms round, or particularly in Theravada countries, the arms round is practiced where the monk will go and present themselves in front of a door. They don't knock, they don't ask, they just stand, and if nobody is forthcoming, then they move on. They're not allowed to ask for arms at all. The very act of giving itself is considered to be a meritorious act. In other words, it's a good karmic act, which means nothing other than that. It's something which is a good intentional action. Now, in the countries of the Mahayana, giving was often practiced in another way, which is often people bringing food, money, whatever, produce, to the monasteries. Now, part of the reflection of this was in Tibet. For example, the monasteries were fairly large affairs. Um, and if you take one of the, well, if you take the biggest monastery in Tibet, which was Drepong Monastery, you wouldn't want to send the monks out on arms round because there's 10,000 of them. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine going to the local village like a plague of locusts, <laughs> stripping the village. <laughs> so they were fairly large affairs, so basically they were supported by the laity in different ways, not by the arms round. But the point of this is, is not to give you a history of um, the practice of arms giving in the traditional culture, but the whole point about dealing with greed is to practice giving to others, giving up something, being generous, the perfect antidote to our normal wish to, to grab and hold on to. Now, obviously, this is about our relationship with those others in the world. Now, when one looks, and again, at the so-called giving that goes on in our world, from the, from the governmental level to the individual level, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of it around. I don't know if you've noticed this. 
so-called giving at governmental levels, like aid, for example, often has more strings attached to it, and you know, governments earn far more than they ever give by the various strings that are attached. And then we have this wonderful celebration in the West, which is called Christmas. Have you ever noticed a lot of giving going on at Christmas? There's a lot of exchange going on, but there's not a lot of giving. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> I don't know if you've read it, but uh, the novelist um, James Joyce wrote a book called Finnegan's Wake, which is virtually unreadable in places, but one of the most marvellous things in it is a, um, and it's full of puns, by the way, the whole book is just full of puns, and there's supposed to be a, a letter sent by the children to the parents on Christmas night, and bear in mind it's a pun, and he wishes the many Yule-died greetings. <laughs> there's some wonderful puns in there as well, I, mean, I won't go on, but uh, I think that about sums it up, Yule-died greetings. <laughs> sums up what goes on or what passes for giving at Christmas. So it's usually about exchange of goods, exchange of equally valuable goods. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that one? <laughs> I thought there was a laugh of recognition somewhere there. <clears throat> so what passes for giving isn't, you know, what is the gift? And I'm not going to answer that because that's the question for us all. The gift without the strings. No. Uh, giving without expectation. I'm not being cynical, but I still see very little of that going on. That giving wholeheartedly, without reservation. Now, giving doesn't mean giving materially here at all. And again, there's that big equation usually made. It means also giving of oneself, giving of one's heart and mind, if that's all you have to give in certain circumstances. And sometimes that is all you have to give. You know, the monetary, the, the goods are not required. What is given, what needs to be given is often is time, space, care, consideration, sensitivity. So giving itself is a vastly wide act with multifarious ways of being put into actuality. So when we hear this word, the perfection of generosity, let's not just hear it in terms of the exchange of, as I say, monetary things. And in fact, it's not an exchange at all. There might be nothing given in return. And that's what I mean, giving without expectation. Then, classically, we have the perfection of morality. Within, I actually prefer to translate this perfection of ethics, actually. What is traditionally known as Sila in Sanskrit, or Sila in Pali. What do we mean by morality? Again, it's something, you know, or ethics. Something I think we all have to inquire into. You know, we hear again government, like our government in Britain, spouting the ideas of ethical foreign policy. Yeah, I don't see a lot of ethics in it personally, but that might be just me being cynical about it. But 
but certainly on the personal level. And in fact, I would like to make a distinction here between ethics and morality. There's a big distinction between ethics and morality. All too often the words fora in our ordinary discourse slide into one another. Morality, for those who are not aware, actually is derived from Latin, from mores. In other words, something we share and have consensus about. So as a society, we have morals. But as individuals, perhaps the question is the question of ethics. Because societies, as we know, can have what they call morals, which might be completely unethical. And you only have to think of that within totalitarian regimes, you know, repressive governments, um, where there is a code of morality within those societies, but very little ethical behaviour. So ethics is something which is a question for us. And many, in many ways, the path of the Bodhisattva is also that, as it always is within Buddhism, a path of questioning. Questioning quite deeply our engagement with the world. Now obviously, giving is about our engagement. It's about our being with others, our being for others, or our possibility of being for others. Now, obviously, we're not on the stage. They call these, you know, for example, it's dana paramita, which means the perfection of giving. Or sila paramita, which is the perfection of ethics, or the perfection of morality, if we use a more traditional translation. Now, very few of us are at the stage of perfection, but are we actually even investigating and travelling on that path to it? Now, what this is doing is trying to awaken us to where we are in relationship to these extremely important facets of being. So what has to be under question continuously, with not necessarily at this stage coming up with answers. Answers are not what it's necessarily about at this stage, but it's engaging in the questioning relationship in regard to my ethical actions within the world and towards others. So that means an examination, and, and I, I don't um, quail at the fact that this is not easy. Engage, it means an engagement with our embeddedness in the world. You know, we're embedded in social systems. We're embedded in personal relations, for example. We're embedded in all kinds of complex relationships with this world, which demand an ethical response from us. It's as big as that, and I don't wish to sort of underplay it, I would rather overplay it. Yet our ethical vision, mostly, I'm not saying all the time, our ethical vision is somewhat tunnel vision, often means looking within very tight, blinkered ways of seeing things. And our ethics themselves are not usually under examination. They are usually something which is taken as being the stuff of opinion. This is right, this is wrong. The one thing you learn about Buddhist ethics is there is no absolute right. Particularly in the Mahayana, and there are no absolute wrongs. 
either. What is all important in any form of ethical action is the context it takes place. So we can talk about you know, the Eightfold Path detail about you know, a great portion of the areas under consideration, like what constitutes right speech, for example, or right livelihood, for that matter. I mean, just that very word, right livelihood, in in how ethically we earn our living, would seem to prohibit some form of livelihood, directly, particularly if one takes the five precepts very seriously. You might not be a publican, for example, Uh, somebody who runs a bar, if you take the you know, the last of the precepts fairly seriously about uh, not wishing to take intoxicants which cloud the nature of their mind. So, from that very basis, even looking at our livelihood, that has to come under consideration. Again, without me sitting up here declaiming what is right and what is wrong, it's just opening up that arena of investigation for ourselves. In this world, perhaps, in the bigger world context that we are now embedded in as well, that needs to be under consideration, where, for example, ethically we purchase things from. Who do we support unwittingly in our purchasing of certain goods, what kind of sufferings are inflicted in the name of purchasing certain things from certain companies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand what That depends on the individual. You see, I mean, in a sense, what you've done is restate the question to which there is no answer, no definitive answer. Um, That's why I'm saying it depends on the individual, it depends on how rigorously you want to pursue it. But the whole point I'm trying to make is that it at least has to come under consideration. It has to come under consideration, if we are to think in ethical terms. Or 
Yes, I mean the system. The system is extremely complex, and we can't know the machinations totally of that system. But the point is, with growing awareness, you know, either through things like the media, through exposés of what's going on, through our own awareness, we become aware of places where it's simply unethical to be, for example, buying or selling goods. So if one has that awareness, then the ethical thing is, do you act in accordance with it? Now, once it's been raised to awareness. Now, that's not to say that you can entirely raise all the system to awareness. I think that's almost an impossibility. But it's, it's negotiating your way with the best intentions through the complexities, through the densities of this social economic system that we are all embedded in. We're all kind of none of us, none of us have our hands clean in it at all. And we do that with the eye of awareness as best we can. And that's really all I'm saying in terms of the bigger picture. In terms of our ordinary ethics, our own ethics, in day-to-day life, then that is under consideration as well. How we treat others. How we behave with others. What are we prepared to compromise? We might, for example, I mean, so-called ethical virtues, as one knows, can become ethical vices if adhered to too strictly. You know, for example, always tell the truth. Well, that can be a very nasty weapon when used incorrectly. And then it becomes something like harsh speech, not <laughs> an ethical way of behaving. So that's what I mean. We've got to examine the totality as much as we can with the awareness that we have. It's a diffi- I didn't say it was easy. <laughs> This is a very, very difficult task for all of us. Um, and it's not just exclusive. I'm presenting it in terms of the Mahayana, but it's not just exclusive to the Mahayana path. This is the fundamentals of Theravada practice for those who are more interested in Theravada practice as well. You know, part of the threefold distinction and the very first part of the whole path is the path of Sila. Then there's Samadhi and Panya. But Sila is the important part, developing one's ethical sense in the world. Without it, the rest is meaningless. So that's how fundamental it is. Now here's a good one. Um, The third of the perfections here, that one should be engaged in questioning, is the perfection of patience. You know, a right smile came to a lot of people's faces there. <laughs> is patience with regard, for example, to the practice itself? This is, you know, Kachanti Paramita. Perfection of patience. Patience in action. Now, this specifically relates to the practice of the path itself. To the practice of meditation, for example. But again, one has to drop the expectation and be patient. Because for those who take this seriously, the whole path of the Bodhisattva, 
with the arrival of bodhicitta, the development of compassion, a real wish to help others, well, it's not going to occur overnight. It's not going to happen just like that. It's going to take a long time. And in fact, you might not even be able to judge whether you have achieved anything at all. Because if it's become integrated into your being, you won't know about it. Because it's just integrated into your being. Because there'll be no if I think, oh, I'm being a bit more compassionate today. <laughs> yeah, it does sound odd, doesn't it? <laughs> so as when you begin to recognise it as I'm being compassionate, I'm being this, you're not it. You're play acting it. But when it's integrated into you, you just act. That's all you do. So patience. And it's one of the classic ones, isn't it? Patience is a virtue. Well, it's certainly a virtue in Buddhism. <laughs> certainly if one takes the traditional notion in the Mahayana path, but of course the path of the both that, but it's a path that takes a long, long time. But that's how dedicated you are, or your motivation is to wish to help others, is to actually enter into, albeit literally or metaphorically, a path which is going to take a tremendously long time to do that but you're so committed that you're prepared to embark on that long journey to awakening. So patience is absolutely central to this. It's central to our being with others, too. Have you ever noticed that thing called irritation? <laughs> with others, if they don't do things exactly the way you want them to, or they don't behave exactly the way you would like them to, this is not patience. <laughs> this, is, this is irritation. And irritation arises out of, well, anger. And anger is always linked to hatred, dislike, ultimately. By the way, I might just throw this in at this stage, um, for those who don't know this, but because sometimes we, particularly when we start talking about ethical issues and things like that, we get forms of righteous indignation and anger about that's a global situation about individual people's ethics, the way they behave. The Buddha actually says that anger is never justified in any circumstance whatsoever because anger is always linked to hatred. So we can't even be left with our righteous indignation about things. <laughs> yeah, that has to be stripped away too. Uh, we're deceiving ourselves, in other words, if we think we've got a good form of anger going. <laughs> There's no good form of anger. It's all linked to destructive tendencies, the wish ultimately perhaps to harm others through anger, and as I say, with its direct linkage into hatred. Now, the absolute antidote, of course, to all that is patience. Patience with oneself, patience with one with others. Um, and, um, and also, you know, to have this energy that gives a rise to anger and it's lost, may manifest as anger, but when it's still going, it, it transforms, doesn't it? Well, that's, yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah, no problem with that at all. I mean, that's certainly within certain parts of the idea of the transformation 
those energies into something else and I've talked to a number of people about this so far of the actual transmuting, using the energy for a positive purpose. So, for example, you might use the, the, ang- the energy from anger to do a visualisation, for example. And you'll be surprised. I mean, some forms of Tibetan practice actually work on deliberately trying to make you angry. <laughs> and then go, meditate. <laughs> and then you have to sit down and do a complex visualisation and you're getting even more mad about it. <laughs> Um, but the energy is going into doing something positive with it. Um, so yes, there's that. But what the Buddha basically is getting at is this kind of deception that we can go through. That anger is a justifiable thing. It's never justified. It's never. It, we can never valorize it in any way and say, "Oh, that was good." You know, you really gave them a good seeing too because they were wrong. No, it's just not. It's the opposite of compassion. It's the opposite of patience. It's the opposite of care. It's not skillful. It's you know, unwholesome. Akusala. It's what we do. Yeah. It's what we do. If, if we transmute it, no problem. And most of it isn't at our kind of level, unless we're working with particular practices. We don't do that. We 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 see, <laughs> or we inflict it on others. You know, why keep a good anger to yourself? <laughs> Give it to somebody else. Um, so it's used very very unskillfully, very unwholesomely, and and that's the issue here. <laughs> Two questions. Yeah. I think the back men. That's actually a Taoist story. It comes from Taoism. Um, it's in Chuanzhou, in Chuanzhou, for um, you know, the, the analects of Chuanzhou, um, where he talks about working with things as they are. So the perfect butcher cuts up via the joint, not hacking their way through the bones. And it's a kind of metaphor for moving through life properly by understanding the articulation of life. It's this, you know, maps onto Buddhism very well. But that's the, the basic gist of what's going on in that story. I'm cool. Sorry. When you say the anger is never justified, you're talking about the expression of anger. Uh, no, even the feeling. Okay. Yeah, the, the expression is um, particularly unskillful, yeah. but the feeling itself is never justified. How do you call particular situations, for instance, in which uh, you, uh, you come across some sort of abuse? 
Well, I mean, why, why, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, those situations are difficult, obviously. But, you know, let's put it this way, that anger might cloud the situation. You know, in other words, I might not even act, enact it, but I'm kind of really upset by the situation, and anger is in my mind. It might cloud my judgment about, say, if I'm a helper, somebody working with this kind of situation, about what to actually do. Why not um, develop things like clarity of vision? In other words, see clearly what's going on. Compassion, the desire to help. Anger could be a blockage that actually stops you from doing something properly. Now, I mean, similarly, I mean, people, you know, it's very interesting. Um, I personally know quite a number of people involved in environmentalism. The most effective ones I've seen involved in environmental issues and that are the people who are not angry about it. In fact, they're cold-bloodedly see what they want to do and change. The angry ones don't get anything done. They just sort of sit there and seize about everything. It's that kind of clarity of vision, the ability to see what to do to change things that's necessary. So anger itself is, is a distortion yeah. of the situation. It's not, it's not about clarity of vision yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, I was going to say, what about in those situations of certain psychotherapies mm. that would suggest that perhaps there has been incidents of control in childhood mm. and that anger hasn't been expressed and that it needs to be a catharsis? Mm. Right, otherwise it's it only way that actually solving certain problems. Mm. What happens in those kind of situations? And often it's encouraged. You know, if you think about the story of therapy, yeah. counseling, counter transformation, etc. What about in those situations? Where it's necessary to experience? Well, if you see the working of Buddhism, it's a psychotherapy. It's not a psychotherapy. It's about transformation in a completely and utterly different way. Um, and I think there's, there's quite a bit of odds there between those two approaches. And in a Buddhist approach, you would deal with it in a different way. You wouldn't deal with it by enacting it. You would look at the causes for it. You would find a different way of diffusing it without having to go through the, the kind of emotional catharsis to get it out. Um, there would be a whole different path of transformation involved in that, um, which doesn't necessitate doing what they do in psychotherapy, which is why sometimes I think the the mixture and the, the attempt often to reduce Buddhism to a psychotherapy is misguided, personally. I have seen the Buddhist, so-called Buddhist-orientated psychotherapists using it like psychodrama. Mm. 
and actually kind of encouraging it with the basis that it has got a Buddhist foundation to it. Mm, I'm sceptical. I'm mm. sceptical. <laughs> 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 yeah. I think, I think that can be true. I mean, I wouldn't want to go into this too much, but I think that can definitely be true. Um, there's a kind of going through the motions rather than getting at the real cause. You see, Buddhism is about eradicating the causes. Now, if you get rid of the cause, you get rid of the effect. Now, this might be another case, I don't know, it might be another case of a kind of symptomatology that goes on in the West where you identify the symptom and apply a placebo to it or something which appears to um, militate against it for a while, or work against it for a while. Um, but quite often what you say is what happens, it, it re-emerges somewhere else, in another form. Gosh, this is getting people going. <laughs> Well, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's, that's the classic 
diagnosis of any, any feeling that passes well, that is feeling. You're always going to have that. You're rightly saying, I've done nothing to disagree with this at all. You're rightly saying it's the clinging to it, the investment of it with power that causes the problem. In other words, you have a thought which passes, arises, and will pass away extremely quickly if you allow it. But what normally happens is it arises and you cling to it and you invest it with power and you put another concatenation of whole other kind of mental events around it and it becomes inflated and reified, stuck, stuck in really common language because of that. So it's not allowed, the word you're using as object word, self-liberate. It's not allowed to pass away in the same way. So we carry our anger around with us for years, <laughs> till we die in some cases. Because we hold on to it in that way. Now, all I was saying about the Buddha saying that was he was saying it's not justified, the anger. You can't cling to it and say, this is justified. Look at what's going on in the world. I'm justified in feeling this anger. Fear and anger are very closely linked. Very closely linked. And in fact, um, all the, you know, the words... Um, there's no separate discussion of fear except within the whole um, aspect of anger and hatred. So fear isn't seen as being separate, it's part of that concatenation of problems which stem from hatred, interestingly. And so the Abhidhamma, for example, which lists out all of these states of mind, does not list fear as a separate root from anger or hatred. Oh, they're cuddly, really. <laughs> yeah, they're cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, they are the energetics. They're not. I mean, for example, um, you have wisdom, oh, let's just use the word wisdom, you have two forms in, depicted in Tibetan iconography, which is manjusri, as a, as a beautiful looking youth with soft clothes, and he actually wields the sword, but apart from that, everything's soft and gentle about him, he looks very beautiful. And then you have, have his other half, who has nine heads, 16 legs and 34 arms. And I wonder how he gets through the door, but never mind that. Um, the thing about it is he's surrounded by flames, he's, he's drinking blood from the skull cup. And this is supposed to be the kind of wisdom that's energetic, that actually gets things done, where the other is a much more kind of passive insight. So in other words, it recognises as a kind of passive and dynamic aspect to most psychological states, particularly wisdom and compassion. So, for example, all of the images, both the so-called terrifying images and the nice gentle ones, are all images of wisdom and compassion. They're just the different dynamics of it. Now, for example, if you're a passive kind of person, you might be given as a meditational deity one of these really strong images to kind of wake you up and get the energies going in you. And that's why you have them there. They're not, I mean, they might look angry, but as I say, they're rather cuddly. <laughs>
the way they do their suggestions that any kind of uh, anger is going to be rid of. And this practice, I mean, I'm not just I was just making a general point more than a specific point. That, that for example, <laughs> well, it depends. On, you see, it depends on you. It depends on the psychological type. It would depend on, for example, which particular deity or which particular figure might be given to you in a certain situation, in order for you to channel that properly. Now, one of the things that they talk about. And I don't want to get into this too much. This is tantra. <laughs> but it's one of the things that uh, they talk about is the, the thing that you must have, of course, is a relationship with whatever the meditational object is. In other words, you have to, in some way, be attracted, because it's the relationship you're going to have with it. So that's the first thing. And the teacher, master, will often try and discern what kind of personality you are in order to give you the right meditational object that you can genuinely have a relationship with and use as your visualisation in order to channel things like anger and you know, upset and grief and all sorts of negative mental emotions. Coming back to the topic which we started with, which is you know, patience here, with working with visualizations, even just working with these simple figures, and you've probably gathered, you have to have quite a lot of patience to build them up properly, to get work with the feeling, to then get the figure, and to build it up gradually, 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 so that you eventually can actually see what you're trying to visualize. <laughs> I don't dispute that. All I'm saying is that Buddhism itself is not a psychotherapy. No. <laughs> you might need to supplement some forms of Buddhist understanding with 
some insights which are gained from psychotherapeutic use. Um, just why on that point, part of the big difference is, is language. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Tibetan language is a very lexically poor language comparative to English. Fun? Lexically poor. It doesn't have as many words to things um, as English. Yeah. Um, so for example, I mean, Tibetan are either happy or sad. <laughs> There's nothing in between. <laughs> um, so they don't have a vast range of words and that we have to describe emotions. And um, a certain friend of mine who learned English a lot later said he didn't have, didn't know he had certain emotions, but he had the English words for them. <laughs> um, and we also often joke. We used to joke about translating Dostoevsky into Tibetan. <laughs> <laughs> which would go something like boy meets girl, boy makes girl sad, girl makes boy sad, <laughs> boy leaves girl, you know, everything of any subtlety would go. <laughs> um, because it's that, but that's because the language is so so different. Um, and language structures reality to a certain extent. Um, the way that we see things. So yes, I mean I don't disagree. I think we need to supplement some forms. Tibetan is, a, is a, an extreme example because if you take the other end of the extreme then Sanskrit is a lot richer in words than English. You know, for example, it has 60 words for dog. <laughs> dog. <laughs> the four-footed thing. <laughs> um, so then you've got the opposite problem that actually Sanskrit makes lots and lots of more distinctions than English can make and of course the language of the Mahayana scriptures are all in Sanskrit. Yeah, so you've got two ends of the spectrum here, and, and English is kind of wedged in the middle somewhere. Shall I go on and make a few more points, because I want to leave enough time for um, some, uh, at least 10-15 minutes of sitting at the end. I just want to go quickly through the last of the perfections. We've done three of them. <laughs> That's all. Um, Perhaps I'll mention just one more and we'll leave the other two for the next talk. The next one in the list is the perfection of effort, virya. Now, as you probably gathered, I mean, one of the meditational practices we've been doing, in a sense, is exactly about that. It's about effort, which is the one about cutting off thought and letting thought go. Now, to let thought go doesn't require much effort, does it? Actually, sort of just sit there, vegetative state, <laughs> you know, just letting things happen. There you go. That's the one end. The other end is really vigilantly trying to chop off every thought as it arises, which requires a lot of effort. Now, the perfection of effort, of course, is getting the right amount of effort involved in it. So, in other words, here's a way of looking at it in terms of our practices. Sometimes we can go at our practices far too hard far too hard. Um, you know, the Sri Lankan meditation friend of mine said, you know, we just like beating ourselves up um, even more, particularly when we're doing meditation and things like that. And here's the one I told you, said we, you know, we, we kind of, we always look much more miserable in doing meditation than we do in other things. Um, and Buddhism can be yet another millstone that we hang around our neck in terms of its practice. So that's kind of the too much effort. You go at things far too strongly. Westerners also have a, a wonderful desire to perfect things. 
you know, to get things absolutely, absolutely right, you know, to look at the finer details of things and, you know, uh, and get all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed in exactly the right way. Meditation's not like that. <laughs> it's not a precise art in that way. And there's a lot of flexibility. There are no absolute rights and wrongs arising out of it. And so we're looking for perfection. If we're trying to put all this kind of really mental effort stuff into it, we just end up tense and miserable, despite the fact of doing lots of meditation. The other end of the scale, of course, is doing nothing. <laughs> That's no effort at all. <laughs> you know, oh, tomorrow I'll put off meditation until tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I'll have a sitting tomorrow. Oh, in fact, oh, I haven't done it today. I have four hours at the end of the week. <laughs> you know, always put off till tomorrow what you can do today. <laughs> Was the motto of that kind of approach. Um, actually, I'm going to tell you a funny story, a slight digression. I was trying to explain to uh, the same to that friend I told you about, about the emotions, and with the emotions, what the um, Spanish word mañana meant. He thought about this extremely carefully for about ten minutes and said, we don't have a Tibetan word which expresses such urgency. <laughs> <laughs> So that's a kind of no effort at all <laughs> required in that. And so we have to get the balance right. We have to live balanced in terms of our effort. So effort is required, but the right effort. The right effort feels effortless. Effortless. It's <laughs> getting late. It, it feels effortless to do things with the right amount of effort being utilised. So it's extremely important on the path that we develop effort in this right way. Now, effort is required in everything, isn't it? It's not just about the path in terms of specific practices. It's required in our relationships. For example, you know, we can go at a relationship too hard. We can take not enough trouble with it. But you need to make the right amount of effort to sustain good relations with people. So that, in ordinary life, just ordinary life, which is, as I said yesterday, is your practice. That is your practice. It's not in here. Ordinary life is your practice. So when we talk about perfection of effort, we're not just thinking about meditative practice, although it's there within it, but it's in those ordinary daily tasks that you're engaged in to find the right amount. Now, we in the Western world, of course, try to juggle too many things in the air, often at once. So we're not even aware of what effort we're putting in things a lot of the time. So perhaps, again, patience is required and the right amount of effort is required in all of our relationships in life, to the things that we do, to the people we relate to. So it's extremely important that we get that right. Now, perfection is somewhere else. It's you know, at the end of the better part of the path. But we must at least be inquiring into it as we engage day to day in activity. I'll just mention the last one, um, and then if people want to ask more questions, please do, about anything, you know, it doesn't have to be about what I've been talking about, is the last of the sections, I'll talk about dhyana, which is obviously meditation, I'll talk about that on, in the next talk, but the last one is the perfection usually translated as wisdom. 
the Prajna Paramita. Um, I hate to deceive you, I hate to upset you again, but Prajna, as a translation, with wisdom as a translation, is a horrible translation of this word. Um, it really means perfection of insight or the perfection of understanding. Because actually, in Buddhist terms, they talk about false prajna. And it would be very odd if we had false wisdom, wouldn't it? I mean, in English, we actually said false wisdom. And this is exactly what they do accuse non-Buddhists of, actually, of having false insight. Not false wisdom. So, insight is that which penetrates to the nature of reality and sees, sees things as they are. Not as we would like them to be, in some kind of fantastic relationship that we have with them, but as they are. And that's the perfection of wisdom. The Bodhisattva attains the perfection of wisdom when he sees things as they are, and acts in accordance with them as they are. Now I've said that deliberately because we talked at the beginning quite a lot about impermanence. We might, for example, see impermanence, but do we act in accordance with the fact that things are impermanent? Very rarely no. So the Bodhisattva brings in line the perfection of understanding and the perfection of action. Two. So in other words, you act in the way things are, in accordance with their real nature, which is impermanent and selfless. I think I've probably said enough of this evening. I have only given you five, but uh, I did mention the six <laughs> very briefly, which is perfection of meditation, perfection of dhyana. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's the sixth one. Yeah, Buddhism is you know, kind of number fetishes, so like six and eight and four and three and all kinds of numbers. <laughs> Paradox. I think that the, the, it's more of a harmonisation that um, whilst one acts, you know, on the path with the awareness that today is the day to act because tomorrow might not be, you can still have patience towards the outcome of that. The point, important point is that you're acting now. In other words, you're putting effort into what you're doing, but you're not just looking at the end. You're engaged in the now. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's redirecting your vision. I think this is really what it's about. I mean, most the, path of, the path is the fruit. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. And um, for those not familiar with this term, it's actually rather than looking at the goal, that's the way most of us look, isn't it, when we do something, is it the goal at the end. I want to get that thing at the end there. And of course, in Buddhist terms, that's Buddhahood or Nirvana, or if it's Theravada, it's Arahatship. But rather than doing that, you look at where you are 
what you're doing and how where you are and what you're doing feeds back into that and actually creates the path as you go forward. So it's not just about ends. It's the end is now. It's right now. It's not somewhere else. <laughs> But it's here now, it's here now. I mean, the, the, the goal is here. I mean, it always strikes me as very opposite. Um, perhaps we should just finish on this and then, and then do sort of 15 minutes of sitting up there. Is uh, Eliot's uh, Four Quartet Little Giddings, um, which some of you probably know, where, you know, the end of all of our journeys is to return to the same place and know it for the first time. Yeah, so the journey is, is about here. And you get, equal, you, know, you get similar things quoted in, in Japanese stuff, in Dogen, for example, you know, about the journey is, not, is the important thing, it's not the goal, it's not the getting to the top of the mountain, it's the journey up the mountain, and that's the goal. The goal is the path itself. Remember I think about the ethical thing. Context is everything. Mm-hmm. And it's true of effort as well. You know, you know, one situation will demand a certain amount of effort, another situation will demand another amount of effort involved in it. So it's changing. It's not as if there is one standard mean of effort that you require to put into everything. It's that you know, it changes dependent on the context. It, as you know, we can talk about this in ordinary English, some people demand more effort than others to be with. And I don't mean that in a horrible sense. I just mean that you know, some people require more of you in that way, and other people require less. Now, if you applied the more to the person that required less, they'd go, oh, hang on a second, what's going on? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's examining. That's the important part. The awareness that you bring to all of these facets, that there is no standard that you can just keep applying mechanically, either to your ethics, to your patience, to your morality, to any of these bits that I talked about. There's no one standard. And that would be easy, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Oh, just one more, okay. Mm-hmm.
I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly the case because um, I mean, this is not exclusive to Mahayana Buddhism, by the way. And the quote that I gave you about you know, Buddha says that anger is never justified is actually out, out of the Pali scriptures. You know, so it's not Mahayana from the fighters. Um, but yes, wisdom and compassion, acting from those motivations out of friendliness and compassion, don't stop action. They're a different way of acting in the world and dealing with the world situation the things that the world throws at you. So instead of automatically falling back onto acting out of you know, hatred, which is where we say anger stems from, you know, out of the three non-virtues, greed, hatred and delusion, giving rise to anger and acting in the world in that way, then Buddhism really is presenting you with a completely other scenario and saying, well, you can still act in the world, but you don't have to act out of those motivations. You can act out of completely different motivations and still act in the world. I mean, this is what actually happens with the Buddha, isn't it? The Buddha attains nirvana. He doesn't sit, out, sit in some blissed-out state. He continues to go around talking, acting in the world, but acting not out of the motivations generated by greed, hatred, and delusion, but simply out of those generated by generosity, friendliness, and understanding. You know, so they are, they are sort of antithetical ways of being in the world. Um, and... Yeah, I think you could argue, and I would argue actually, that you can act and get all the things done, like saving people, helping, doing all the things that you do, out of simply those two facets, out of those facets of generosity, friendliness or compassion and understanding. You don't have to be compelled to act out of you know, the more negative, unskillful ways of behaving. Yeah. Mm. It's, oh, I mean, I hesitate to say it's wrong. It's just ultimately ultimately unskillful, it's unwholesome ultimately. Now in certain situations like that, you know, perhaps it's all you can do, it's the best you can do at that moment in time. And I think this is the thing we have to get away from is that is that we're all, no matter how unskillfully we're doing, we're trying our best in this world with the tools that we have. Um, but we're trying to develop better tools to deal with it. Um, so, of course, we're going to continue to act sometimes out of anger, sometimes out of jealousy, sometimes out of all kinds of emotions. Um, but we're trying to find our best way of acting in the world. Um, only we don't do it that well <laughs> all the time. Um, and the whole point is about thinking about this, talking about it, and meditating, and trying to practice this stuff in the world. If you're trying to develop a completely different set of skills 
for being in the world, one which you hope perhaps has a kind of trust that will replace those kind of blunter objects that you're using. I did say one more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> um, I'm not, I mean, I wouldn't want to get too hung up on this. I mean, there are ways of redirecting it. And so, as I said earlier on, that it, that, are, that can be skillful. You know, just to kind of reiterate the point, the only point I was trying to make is that anger itself is not really justifiable. But the redirection of it, the transmutation of it, doing what the kinds of things you were describing, fine. But let's not kind of just valorize it and say it's a good state to be, you know, angry about, you know. Um, you know, social ills we see about the world that doesn't get us anywhere it doesn't help at all in fact it can be destructive it can be destructive to the individual it can be destructive to others particularly when it's enacted but those other wholesome ways of redirecting it are fine there's nothing wrong with that and that's exactly what Buddhism is about transforming something I think we ought to meditate <laughs> Yeah. Well, fear, fear is yeah, fear is another manifestation. Fear is another manifestation. Okay.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.